Our Father, we would rest our souls before you today. We thank you that you are the God of all love and grace, love and kindness and mercy. These are the amongst the many themes we have been studying in your word. We're so grateful, Lord, that as we get to know you better, we realize that you're a God who is better to us than we could even possibly ever hope for, and a God who walks with us each and every day. We thank you for the word that you have shared with us to understand your nature, your purpose, and your plan for our lives, and what it is you have done through the thousands of years of history. And now, Lord, as we look into the life of this young man who will one day grow up to be a mighty prophet, Samuel, we ask that you will direct our study and guide our thoughts and teach us from his life those truths which will help us to be better what you've called us to be. And Lord, as your word is proclaimed now throughout this property, through the city of Reading, the state of California, and around the world, we ask that you will glorify yourself this day. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the first chapter of the book of Samuel, I'd like to read the first nine verses. Now there was a certain man from Ramathame Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name was, of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Well, as you can see, trouble is brewing in, in Ephraim. <clears throat> we are now in the early 11th century before Christ, approximately, and we're looking at the life of a rather obscure Levite by the name of Elkanah and, of course, his two wives. The scripture tells us that he is living in the hill country of Ephraim, which is more or less central in what is today the land of Israel. In fact, uh, Shiloh is in the West Bank. It's part of the area now that if the Arabs have their way, will be a separate state and will not even be a part of Israel. What is interesting about this man is his name, Elkanah. Elkanah means God has taken possession. In other words, he is God's. That's basically the meaning of the name. What you discover as you look at this is that his name was more promising than his character. He was living in Ramathim Zophim. That's a little harder to say than Redding or Red Bluff or Anderson. What is interesting is that this is the only time that name is mentioned in Scripture. It means heights of the watchers. Wherever you see any other reference to Samuel, either his birth or his death, it always says Rama, R-A-M-A-H which means heights, and, and it never again mentions this full name here in Scripture. Now, what is interesting is that the word Rama or Rama is very common 
because it simply means heights. And you, you understand that now. We have country heights here in Reading, and there's this height and that height. And so they had in Israel. Uh, this height, that height. If you had your town up on a hilltop, you lived in such and such heights. So the problem we have is, where was this place located? Well, there is a Rama that is a fairly famous Rama that was located 15 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. And many claim that that is the Rama that we're talking about here. On that site, if you go there today, you will find there is a mosque. There is a mosque sitting right there on that site. And from that site, you can actually look back and see the city of Jerusalem. The mosque is known as Nabi Samuel. Now, that is Arabic for the prophet Samuel. And that is claimed to be the tomb of the prophet Samuel. There are some problems, however, with this location. First of all, the scripture clearly says that Samuel was born in Ephraim. Well, the Ramah, the famous Ramah, is not in Ephraim. It's in the tribal area of Benjamin. Plus the fact there is absolutely nothing to support the claim that Nabi Samuel, that this mosque, sits on the actual tomb of Samuel. It's just tradition. There's no physical evidence to indicate that that is true. So it's very unlikely that that is the Ramah that is being talked about. In fact, many scholars believe that the Ramah was, was to the almost due west of Shiloh, which is further north, maybe 15, 20 miles north, of Nabi Samuel, which would make it about 30, 35 miles north of Jerusalem. So Ramah was uh, somewhat west of that. At the end of verse 1, we discover that Elkanah is called an Ephraimite. Now that can be confusing, because when you hear of somebody being called an Ephraimite, you usually think of that being a person who was born to the tribe of Ephraim, but that is not true of Elkanah, because his lineage was Levitical. He was a Levite. And if you go to the sixth chapter of First Chronicles, which we won't, but if you go there, you will discover that he was a descendant of the Kohathite branch of the tribe of Levi, and that he was the third in his family to bear that same name. He is the third Elkanah. Well, when you have a name that says that is God's possession, that's a pretty popular name. And so he is the third, at least, that the scripture mentions to bear that same name. What is also interesting is that if you go back to Joshua, you will discover that Ramah is not listed as one of the 48 Levitical cities. So Elkanah, a Levite, was not living in a, in a Levitical city. He was not living in one of the territories given over to the Levites. Now, he's not the only Levite not to live where they were given property, and, and there was no law saying they had to stay in those 48 Levitical cities because that was their actual possession. Uh, you discover as you read through the scripture through time that people of various tribes mixed in with each other and lived in different territories. They didn't always live in the territory originally allotted to them by Joshua. The events of the first chapter of Samuel that we've begun today and will continue next week occurred in the years immediately following the judgeship of Samson. So Samson's had his thing, you know, and all the these thousands of Philistines have died in the destruction of their temple of Dagon, and these are in the years after that, and sort of the dust is still settling over the struggle between Israel and the Philistines. The Philistines suffered a terrible setback in the death of Samson, and so Israel is a bit freed from Philistine oppression, maybe for a little while here, and we are in the judgeship of Eli. Eli is the high priest. He is also the judge of Israel at the time that we are uh, discussing here. 
what we discover is that men are still doing what was right in their own eyes. Remember, that was the phrase that is oft quoted in the book of Joshua. I'm sorry, the book of Judges. Men were doing what was right in their own eyes. In other words, anarchy. We've talked about this before. Israel, according to God, was to be a theocracy. That is, God would rule through the tabernacle order, the priests, and then the occasional shofat, or judge, which he would raise up. But Israel has degenerated from that into anarchy. And this is the situation that surrounds the events of the first chapter of the book of Samuel. We see this illustrated in the life of Elkanah. Right off the bat, we discover, as we read in, in the second verse of the chapter, he's, it says, and he had two wives. Now, that is not totally unusual. We know, for example, that Jacob, the founder of the Israelite nation, had two wives, but that was not his plan. It was the way it actually worked out. But this man apparently has chosen to have two wives. This seems to illustrate this, this uh, every man doing what's right in his own eyes, because God has not changed the program that he established in the book of Genesis. One man, one woman, together for the duration of their lives. That was God's program in Genesis, and it has not changed. Yet this man has two wives. Now, polygamy, polygamy was not unusual. It was, it was widely practiced in the ancient Near East, outside of Israel, in the pagan world. Very, very commonly practiced, particularly if wife number one is barren. We've talked about barrenness before, and, and you understand the significance of that. It was far more important in those days than it is today, because a woman had no value outside of bearing children, particularly sons. That is, she felt that way, and often society viewed her in that way, and that's what we're going to see here in this passage. That is why Hannah is so unhappy, and that's why there's so much trouble between her and the other wife, Penina. The influence of pagan culture on the Israelite society is seen in, in what Elkanah is doing here, in having two wives, particularly, of course, because he has chosen two wives because his first wife is also barren. Hannah had no children up to this moment. As will soon become obvious as we study through this passage, had he hung on, patience, we, we say patience is a virtue, patience is an attribute of God. Patience is something we And as you read through this first chapter, you discover she is the central figure of the chapter. She is the one where the focus is. She is the one who is really seeking God. She is the one who displays the virtue of faith, the attribute of faith in this chapter. Penina is the real burr under the saddle, it might seem, at least from Hannah's point of view and Elkanah's point of view. Her name meant ruby. She was the second wife. She was probably younger than Hannah. And more importantly, she had borne Elkanah several children. It's, it's in the plural, and later on we discover sons plural and daughters plural. So she had produced multiple children, at least two of each, maybe even more. We don't know how long they, this marriage situation has been going on. She will be the one that will cause the great trouble in the home for reasons that we will discover that are not really all her fault. Now, if you go back to Exodus, we won't turn there, but if you go back to the, 20, uh, the 34th chapter of Exodus, you will discover in there that the Lord had commanded that all the males of Israel were to appear before him three times a year. They were to appear before him at the feast known as Passover in early spring, 
they were to appear before him at the feast of first fruits, which was very late spring, and then they were to appear before him at the feast of tabernacles, which was in the fall. They were to the, the men of Israel, the, which meant every male bar mitzvah age and older, 12 and older roughly, were to appear before the Lord those three times. That was his command of his people. Where they were to meet and what they were to do is outlined for us. I would like to turn to the 12th chapter of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 12, looking at verse 5. But you shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God shall choose from all your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. Well, at the moment we're talking about, it's Shiloh, because Shiloh had been established during the days of Joshua and was still the place where the tabernacle was. Eventually, of course, the tabernacle would be moved, and eventually a temple would be built in Jerusalem, and then that would be the place that God would choose. Verse 6, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And that's an important passage because it helps us to understand the framework of what is happening in this first chapter. They are going there uh, to, to uh, carry out what God has ordered them to do there. And part of the celebration is a feast. And, and that's what, where we see the rub coming in here, is at the feast that they have. And you will notice there at the end of verse 7, it says, what were they to do there? One of the things they were to do there was to rejoice. Rejoice in all that God has done. Rejoicing should characterize the meeting together of God's people. Rejoicing in God and rejoicing in all that he has done. That doesn't mean we aren't in pain sometimes or we aren't in the middle of suffering sometimes. But we rejoice with each other and we let our rejoicing carry over to those that are in pain and reach out to those who are in pain. And that's part of the story of the first chapter of Samuel also. Verse 3 of the first chapter of Samuel is a little bit strange because it says, Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord. Well, you look at that and say, yearly, mm, yearly. That sounds like once a year, and yet they're ordered to do this three times a year. What's the deal? Well, uh, looking at this, I've come up with five possibilities <laughs> for interpreting this. <laughs> First of all, is that this, this, this annual pilgrimage that is being referred to here is the Levitical pilgrimage the time when a Levite was supposed to go up once a year and serve his term at the tabernacle. And so that may be referring to this, even though when you read about the details of it, it doesn't sound like that. But, but it's, a, it's a possibility. Secondly, the possibility is that the apostasy of the era of the judges has so impacted the general level of commitment to the Lord that they've kind of pared it down to once a year. Three times is too much. We'll just do it once a year. That's, you know, that's good enough. God, God will understand. God will be happy if we do it just one time. Thirdly, and I think this is a, a significant possibility, the chaos of the times made it so that three pilgrimages, that was impractical to travel, break up three times and, and go up to here. Uh, you know, if, it depends on where you lived in Israel. For him, it was probably only a single day journey to go to Shiloh. But if you were way up at Dan or way down in Beersheba, 
why, you know, it was a multi-day tri trip to go all the way up to Shiloh, spend time there, and come all the way back. That's like taking out two weeks out of your work schedule three times a year uh, to go up and, and see the Lord, uh, to, to worship the Lord. So it could be that the uh, situation was such that, well, you know, in the days of Jesus, when the Roman Empire ruled, and it was supposed to be in the midst of the Pax Romana, when peace ruled over the Mediterranean like it never had before, and yet Jesus tells of the man who went from Jerusalem to Jericho and got beat half to death by, by brigands. You, know, you, you still have chaos even in the midst of ordered times. Thirdly, fourthly, it could be that the word annually subsumes three trips that it is simply saying annually and, and implies that all three times that we're supposed to be are included in that term. And then lastly, that this was the only pilgrimage of the three in which he took his whole family. You see, the order was all males were to appear before the Lord. The females did not have to go. But maybe in, in, in uh, Elkanah's case, once a year he made it a whole family affair and took his wives and his daughters as well as his sons, especially his younger sons, because they wouldn't normally go either, up to that. So take your pick. <laughs> I, I rather go for the latter, that it was simply the family, uh, all family trip of, of them that uh, we're reading about here. The tabernacle is at Shiloh. Shiloh is almost dead center in the country of Israel. As I said today, it's actually in the West Bank, but if you were to look at Israel geographically, it's pretty much dead center, slightly further to the east maybe than dead center but uh, was well located for that particular day. It seems almost to be a warning that the passage mentions Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas because they play no role, Hophni and Phinehas play no role in this first part of the chapter and Eli doesn't really play a role until the latter part of the chapter. So it seems almost by way of warning that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are mentioned here as priests at Shiloh. We are not yet told of the evil of his two sons. Eli was the chief priest. His two sons were to be trained up in the way that they should go, that they would take over. Now, they were already functioning as priests, but we will discover as we move on into the chapter, they were vile men, evil men. And God had a plan to replace them. And little did Hannah know or Elkanah know that they were going to play a role in this, that God was going to break through Hannah's barrenness and give her a son, and that son was to be the replacement of these vile men that Eli had raised. We are informed in the fifth verse that Hannah's barrenness was God's doing because it says God closed her womb. God prevented her from being pregnant. Well, Elkanah, Elkanah. Elkanah compounded the problems in his home by purposely showing favoritism to one of his two wives. Not a good thing to do. Not a good thing to do. At the sacrificial meal, when the portions were uh, dealt out, Elkanah would give to Penina a portion and to each of her sons and daughters, his sons and daughters by Penina, one portion. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. A two-person portion is the literal meaning of this here. Not that Hannah was a big eater. It's not that she could or would eat a double portion. In fact, as we discover, she hardly ate anything because of the problems that uh, came out here. But it was the symbolism here that's important. The symbolism is what is important. It was given to her by Elkanah as a symbol of the fact that he loved Hannah more than he loved Penina. It doesn't say that. It just simply says he loved Hannah. 
the implication could be that he didn't particularly care a whole lot about Penina. Well, you know he cared some because, you know, there were multiple children born to Penina through Elkanah. The construction of, of verse 5, the last part of it, you know, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb, seems to indicate that he gave her the double portion, saying by that to her, you have not been fertile, you have not born children, but I love you anyway. Your barrenness does not change my love for you. And, and that's, that's laudable. Verse 6, however, indicates the repercussion of what he was doing. How serious was the situation in, in uh, Elkanah's home? Well, the passage says that Penina was Hannah's rival. Well, if you look up the word rival, you discover that it means adversary. Well, you know, adversary, that's like when you're in the ring and you're in a boxing match. The other guy's your adversary and your goal is to knock him flat before he knocks you flat. So it's not a good relationship to have in the home between two wives and one husband. The scripture says she provoked her, that is Penina provoked Hannah bitterly. If you look that up, you'll discover that the wording there invo invokes the idea of incessantly, constantly on her case. You have no children. You're unworthy. I've got children. I'm worthy. You remember the story of Rachel and Leah. When Leah gave birth, she tended to look down her nose at Rachel. And of course, this happened numerous times, or it was mentioned several times in Scripture, this kind of a, of a rivalry that develops as a result of barrenness and fertility uh, between two women. <clears throat> Actually, the word that, that's translated irritate there, where it says she irritated her bitterly, the word for irritate is also translated thunder. It's the word, Hebrew word for thunder. <laughs> so think about this. This is not some minor irritation. This is not an occasional little jibe. This is like blast, blast, blast. You know, it's like having quadraphonic sound turned up to 9,000 decibels sort of idea here. She's blasting her all the time. She's hammering at her. I have children. You don't. I'm worthy. You're not. This is what Penina is saying to Hannah. It was, an, it was a concerted effort by Penina to hammer down Hannah spiritually, emotionally, in every way possible to hammer her into hopelessness and ultimately to destroy her. That was her goal. So who was controlling Penina? Well, obviously it was the, the adversary with a capital A. She was a tool in the hand of Satan. I'm not saying she was demon-possessed. <clears throat> you don't have to be demon-possessed to be Satan's tool. We're told in Ephesians, in, in the sixth chapter of Ephesians, that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers that are ranged in the spiritual realm. The real world is the spirit realm. And that's why we live in, in such a blind society today. We live in a society that is totally focused on the material issues and everything is thought to be simply material, this worldly, there is no other world. When we die, we just go into the ground like uh, dogs and, and turn to dust. There is a major battle going on in the spiritual realm, and it carries over into the human realm in a way that we don't even often see. Satan is our adversary. He is known as the destroyer. He is not gentle. And all of you certainly have experienced this, particularly as you have raised children, you've experienced this. He is not a gentleman. He will use any available channel 
to destroy people individually and to try to destroy the church corporately. And I mean the church worldwide as well as the individual body of believers. As children of God, you and I must be very careful that we do not become Satan's tools for destruction. And it's so easy to do. All we have to do is allow him to work through us to touch another life in a destructive way. And, and that comes easily. Anger. We let our anger get out of control. And, and we say and do things that become a channel for Satan's activities. Our jealousy, our envy, our bitterness, other selfish motives, any motivation which comes from self can be Satan's tool. And he will use it. He doesn't say, oh, well, this poor person doesn't really understand what he's doing. I'll, I'll leave him alone this time. Oh, he looks for any little crack he can get through. And he will come. It's easy to fall prey to this, to fleshly attitudes. All, all we do is we feel slighted. Oh, well, you know, I was talking to this person and somebody else came up and they immediately started talking to them and, and they forgot I was even standing there. You know, it's so easy to feel slighted over that simple little thing. We feel taken for granted. I do this every week and nobody ever thanks me. We, we feel ignored. They, they don't write me. They, they write them all the time, but they don't ever write me. You know, it, it's, it's easy to feel unappreciated. It, it's easy to feel like we've been not treated fairly, and that is Penina's hang-up. She feels unfairly treated in this particular situation because Hannah had done what a woman in that society was supposed to do. She had borne her husband children, and in particular, sons that would perpetuate the lineage. She had done her job. She should have a monument built to her. Hannah had totally failed. She had not done what a woman in that society was expected to do, what was the purpose of her existence as far as that society viewed a woman in those days. And we've seen that whole struggle as we look through the book of Ruth, book of Ruth. That was a big issue there in the book of Ruth. So her natural reaction was, I am more valuable than is Hannah, but Elkanah is giving her favor and slighting me. That is unfair. And from the human point of view, it is. It is unfair. It was Penina's natural human reaction. And that's the key to the whole thing. It is your and my natural human reaction. Somebody ignores me, somebody slights me, I'm treated unfairly, and, and for me to have a pity party. You know, I've been treated unfairly, I've got to get even, or they need, to, they need to grovel before me to make it right. I mean, that's our natural human reaction. The problem is, natural human reactions are not of God. Those are not God's way of dealing with it. And that's what makes Jesus' life so difficult for us. Jesus was not a doormat, but he was what is known as meek. He was not offended every time somebody turned around and slighted him in some way. Nowhere in Scripture is the contrast between a, flesh, between a godly attitude and a fleshly attitude made more glaringly obvious than in that well-known passage in the fifth chapter of Galatians. Let me just read that. Many of you have even memorized that, I'm sure. At least the latter part of the passage. You probably didn't memorize the first part of it. Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, this is not a complete list of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, in other words, for whom this is a lifestyle, these people shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That it doesn't mean that you or I can't lapse into a moment of jealousy or a moment of dispute or a moment of faction or a moment of, of envying or even drunkenness maybe. But for whom that is a way of life, such a person will not inherit the kingdom of God because he, is, he or she is not a child of God. But in contrast to that, we have this other list. But the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, if we are truly born again and we are inhabited by the Spirit of the living God, the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness, and self-control. Such, against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Jesus Christ have, been crucified, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Of course, in our society, we are trying to pass laws against such things, but generally speaking, there is no law against being gentle and peaceful and joyful and loving and all of these things. So as you look at that particular passage and you see the stark contrast between what Satan has empowered what is the fruit of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and what is the fruit of the Spirit? There is no way we can say, oh, but there's a big gray area there, you know, about being Christian. It's okay to drink a little and be a little drunk as long as you're not real drunk, you know, or to, car to carouse a little but don't carouse a lot. No. I think the Scripture is quite clear. The two lists are antithetical. They're at opposite poles from one another. They are antipodes of each other, if you will. So, if Christians, people who name the name of Christ, live truly in the Spirit, rather than by the dictates of the flesh, do you know what? There would be no such thing as a church split. There would be no such thing as a Christian suing another Christian. There would be no such thing as Christians divorcing one another if they were living in the spirit and not in the flesh. There would be more serving one another. Now, the, you know, the idea of serving one another, we have that in our society, but we have such an individualistically oriented society. You know, the strong man who stood out there, the Paul Bunyan on the frontier, carved out this whole thing all by himself. He didn't need anybody else to do this. This, this flies in the face of the idea of mutual cooperation. We need each other. We need to help each other. and We need to support each other. We need to be corporate in our approach to living the Christian life. We, there would be more prayer for one another if we were truly living in the Spirit. How often do we say, oh man, we're going to pray for you, and you walk away and completely forget it? Some people cover, cover that by saying, well, I'll pray for you as the Lord brings you to mind. Well, you know, that's okay, but write it down somewhere, you know. <laughs> if your memory is as slippery as mine, that's like saying, now oh, forget it, you'll never have a prayer from me. <laughs> there would be more giving in the church towards not only the local work, but world missions. I mean, it would be, you know, you'd have a board in the, in the church that would be trying to figure out how to spend all this money, you know. 
Anyway, the list of differences would be endless. I mean, we could list all kinds of things. Uh, how the church would be if people were living in the spirit in the church. I'm not saying there aren't people who are, but I mean, if we as the, as the, as the congregation of Christ were living in the spirit, as opposed to allowing the flesh to constantly be creeping in to our lives. I would dare to say that if Christians consistently exhibited the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, as listed there in uh, the fifth chapter of Galatians, there would be no need for church growth seminars. There would be no need for seeker-sensitive services. Don't offend anybody, you know. There would be no need for glitzy programs with Christianized popular music or any other human devised method to attract people in the church because people would be pounding at the door saying, how do we become people like these people are? But they look at the church today and what do we hear? Divorce rates are as high in the church as they're outside. Abortion rates are as high inside the church as they're outside. And you think, what? I mean, the church is totally awash in the world. And so people look at the church, well, what's the big deal? You know, I mean, they talk about the Christian right. You know, just a bunch of people out here on the, on the fringe who are uh, all one issue. They would be wanting to discover authentic Christianity. What is authentic Christianity? Authentic Christianity is where the people who claim the name of Christ live like Christ in every situation. It doesn't mean without fail. We all, you know, all of us fail now and then. We blow our top. We do something wrong. But, but our goal is to live like Christ and to keep our lives clean before him. Not a Christianity, that's just a veneer, where if people really look inside your life, they discover you have the same attitudes that the world has, that you do the same things the world does, you think the way the world does. That's, that's not Christianity. A Christian is one who is a follower of Christ. And what did Christ say? Those who are my disciples will do what I say. And if we don't do what he says, the converse, therefore, is true. We're not his disciple. It's just as clear as that. Unfortunately, you probably are well aware of that there are those today who are preaching a gospel of the idea that just get the name of Christ out there somewhere and hopefully it'll slop over on everybody somehow and somehow maybe they'll squeeze into heaven some way. Well, just, I don't see that in Scripture. Just don't see that in Scripture. I don't think we need to, to try to hold up a bait to get people to come to church and then sneak the gospel to them. Tell them straightforward. You're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You come here if you want to be transformed. In the first chapter of Samuel, in the seventh verse, we discover that Peniah's attack on Hannah was incessant. Incessant. It's sort of the Chinese water drip torture, you know. It was probably subdued most of the time. I don't think she was kind of on her case loud and thundering all the time, but it seemed like it became thunderous. It rose to a crescendo every time they went up to worship. Isn't it like Satan? As soon as you, you get really committed, you want to serve the Lord, you want to worship the Lord, I mean, he pulls out all the stops. And your mind gets full of all kinds of vile thoughts, and who knows what all happen. Sort of like what happens on the way to church on Sunday morning, you know. <laughs> Hannah was so distressed by these attacks that were told she was driven to tears and she couldn't even eat one portion of the sacrificial meal, let alone a double portion. But Elkanah, oh, good old Elkanah, he's, he's the real hero here with the very small letters. He illustrates his lack of understanding by reminding her that she has no reason to be crushed and depressed. Because what? You have me. <laughs> he loved her even if she hadn't given him any children. 
He said, aren't I better to you than ten sons? Now, he uses a really exaggerated number. As we saw last time, the, the women of, uh, of Bethlehem blessed Naomi by saying that through Ruth she would have seven sons. That was sort of like saying the epitome. I knew a guy once down in Brazil who'd had six daughters and decided that get, find, getting a son was probably not going to happen, and so he quit. But um, he says, ten sons. I'm better to you than ten sons. And, of course, what he is saying to her is, my love for you is not dependent upon your ability to produce children for me, which is, which is fine. But he does not give her understanding and sympathy here in the sense of really dealing with the cause of her depression and her sense of worthlessness. He was saying, as we do today, don't worry, be happy. Just get over it. And other kinds of stupid things. <laughs> They show absolutely no compassion and no understanding and no even interest in what the real problem is on the part of the person here. The most valuable thing he could have done was to put his arms around Hannah and say, Hannah, let's covenant together to seek the Lord to heal you that you might give forth a child. But that would have been the most helpful thing because that was the root of her depression. That was the source of her pain. A time of concerted prayer with Hannah focusing on this issue, would have done more to relieve her depression than all of the expressions of love, all the valentines, all the double portions he could have ever given her. After all, weren't there many examples in Hebrew history? What about the three great matriarchs? Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel were all barren to begin with. And it was after God blessed them that they bore children. So there is hope there. Plus, Samson's not so far back in history. Samson's mother. Well, what about Ruth? All of this was the result of God's divine intervention. I think unless you and I can actually do something to mitigate a problem, let's say somebody says he's hungry. Well, if you feed him, you've, you've taken care of the issue. But in most, most situations, it isn't something simple like that. The best thing you can do for that person usually is to pray with them over the issue because that demonstrates true Christian love and care and to stand with them in prayer. Praying with someone in a crisis is a genuinely meaningful way of opening the door to God's healing. Prayer is not just some flippant little thing that we say. It's a deep, meaningful joining of souls together in seeking God's intervention in the situation. It's an important thing that we do, and that's why uh, I, I like for us, and I know many of you do too, I hope all, spend a little bit of time of prayer at the end of the class, because I believe that as we corporately agree together, God actually intervenes and God acts. Well, next Sunday we'll begin uh, the next passage in uh, 1 Samuel, and we'll look at what happens on one of the annual pilgrimages up to Shiloh.